Hello, this is Yarrow, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 37, featuring my guest, Matthias Rialfi, the co-founder and CEO at Tint.ai. In today's interview, Matthias is going to take us back in time to how he got started as an entrepreneur, originally from Brazil, and then uh, very quickly, in a very much planned step, went to Harvard University and then entered the world of entrepreneurship really more as a employee, but always thinking about how it could lead to starting his own business. So he joined Turo and was one of the very early employees, I think it was number 15, where he quickly became in charge of their international expansion into countries like Canada, the UK, and Germany. And during that time, he learned a lot about insurance because in order for Turo, which is a, a peer-to-peer car rental company, in order for that company to operate in anywhere, they had to always figure out the insurance part of the equation. And that became a big part of his job. Insurance is different in every single state or province that you enter, so it's always something new to figure out. And that led to seeing the opportunity to start Tint, his current company, which is an insurance play, insurance tech, as they call it. And he's kind of pioneering a new opportunity within insurance, which he calls embedded insurance, which I'll let you hear Matthias explain. I did spend a good five to 10 minutes at the very start of this interview just to get an understanding of what Tint actually does. Insurance to me can be quite opaque. You don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Obviously, what insurance is, is very clear and and simple. But how an insurance company does what it does and and how do you innovate in that space, which Mateus and Tint is doing, was something I didn't quite fully understand. So I did spend a bit of time with them right at the beginning to figure it all out. Great interview, especially if you want to hear a very planned progress from knowing you want to be an entrepreneur to you know going to university, if you like to study, obviously a great option, to then entering a tech startup as an early employee. So a little bit more safe than being the founder, but yet still able to learn a lot as a person who's right at the very start of a tech company that's growing, which gave him the knowledge, the confidence, and also the connections to get that initial investment and start his own company. They've gone on to raise $25 million, $25 million Series B at the time of this recording with over $30 million raised or about $30 million raised in total with the pre-seed, seed, and I think it was Series A, sorry, that they've raised so far. I hope you enjoy this episode with Matthias Rialfi, the co-founder and CEO of Tint. And of course, if you're not familiar with our sponsor, it is inboxdone.com, my company, which provides an email management virtual assistant. In fact, you will get two as a client. All client gets two virtual assistants to take over managing your email, scheduling your calendar, and doing all the other related executive assistant tasks. However, very much we are specialists at email And not just organizing email, but actually replying to your emails to get you out of the inbox. So no matter how many hours a day you're spending replying to messages with inbox done, we can probably free you to 90%, even 100%. Some of our clients are currently not ever going into their email inbox anymore. It's possible. It's something you could do as well. Just head to inboxdone.com to learn more about how we can help you with a virtual executive assistant to handle email calendar and so much more. All right, here's today's interview with Matthias Rialfi. Hi, Matthias. Uh, thank you for joining me. Hi, Yara. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to dive straight into my first biggest question, I have to admit here. So you are the co-founder and CEO at Tint, which is an insure tech company. I was reading into what you do and I was thinking, you know, I really need Matthias to give me the actual explanation of what Tint does first. <laughs> let's, let's start there. So what exactly is Tint as a company? Yeah, that's a great point and, and I'm not surprised. And you know, one of the things we're trying to do is to get a very complicated topic, which is insurance and, and make it as easy as possible for consumers. So what we're trying to do in a very kind of high level and summarized way is to make insurance a feature of products and brands that people love and not as a standalone product. So when you think about, you know, you go to an Airbnb or go an Uber, when you book a, a trip at Airbnb and you stay in a place, you are getting insurance protection as part of the accommodation. You don't have to think about it because Airbnb made it very easy for you. But, you know, if anything were to go wrong, there is insurance around, around the experience. Same for Uber. When you get into Uber ride, if something were to happen, there is insurance to cover the driver, you, the car. And again, as the user, you don't even have to think about it. 
So those are examples of cases where insurance now became a feature of a larger product and people didn't have to download a separate app and go to a separate website to buy insurance while they stay on Airbnb. So that's what is called embedded insurance uh, phenomenon. And what you know, Tint does really, we are powering that revolution. Like we help companies launch scale and optimize their embedded protection or insurance products. Mm, interesting. So I, I'm, this might be a little bit of a stretch as a metaphor, but you're almost like the cloud-based insurance company where other companies are building their own cloud version of insurance based on your back end to provide to their customers. From the perspective of their customers, they don't realize that Tint is even part of it, or maybe that's wrong, but it's coming direct from the company they're buying from. Yeah, I think it's a, it's actually a, a good analogy because we are definitely behind the scenes. So we are the infrastructure and the operating system that is powering those kind of protection products. And we provide the company, say, in, in the likes of Airbnb, in this example, the software that they need to run this process, then the APIs, the connectivity data, those things that need to happen behind the scenes. We help them with compliance and with the back office. And we also help them with what's called like capacity. So finding them partners that would take the risk out of their balance sheet. That's what they want. And again, we, from our customers, it should feel relatively easy implementation of a very complicated product, which is insurance product. I'm thinking back to insurance I've gotten from banks before. I think the bank would probably be the place where I've purchased like a travel insurance it came branded with my bank, but then when I looked at the terms of service, it was powered by an Allianz or you know a big global insurance company that does insurance, that does travel, but it was kind of branded and provided by the bank. That to me sounds like the closest example, but I'm, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is more like you're trying to actually, in some ways, create awareness that an in-house insurance program is available to companies who might not even think they need it or could offer it but when they think about it it's actually a great value add and also protects themselves potentially as well and as in you're trying to get companies that wouldn't normally think about providing insurance to their customers to start doing so is that right yeah i think there's for us we see two types of customers one is like you mentioned companies who never offer any kind of insurance and protection to their customers and they are doing for the first time my former employer, Turo, had to so basically help strangers share cars between them, so Airbnb for cars. Turo had to figure out insurance to exist because obviously in order to convince somebody to share a Porsche with a stranger, you need to put a lot of protections in place, including the promise that if anything goes wrong, the owner of the Porsche is going to get paid back, right? So there's some cases the, the companies like Turo Insurance is existential, and they had to figure out very early in their journey. But there are other cases where insurance is an add-on. It's something that you now can provide a lot of value and extra monetization to companies and make their, their product and services more valuable, but they can operate without. So we, we kind of see these two different use cases. And also there's a third use case, we would say is the most advanced of them, when the companies can, you know, you, in your example, the bank was working at Allianz. So really what's happening there is the bank was getting paid a very small fee to facilitate the transaction. And Allianz was actually the one that was operating and doing everything. We are seeing some of our customers, they start to do more of the roles that the insurer would typically do and keep a lot of that profitability in-house. And we can support that as well through our infrastructure. So we give them all the flexibility from the day where they're just getting started all to, to when they want to scale and it's already a multi-million dollar business for them. So this is more than just reselling Tint's insurance, isn't it? So it's not like the bank example where you're just getting a commission. You're, you're really, like you said, the word embedded insurance. So you're, maybe explain that more to me. Because again, I, I'm fuzzy here. Insurance to me is kind of a broad industry where you know what it is at a top level, but when you actually drill down to what goes on behind the scenes. It's really hard to me. It's all like calculating numbers to figure out whether you can operate insurance at, at profit or not based on the likelihood of claims and so on, which must be different for every industry from a Turo to an Airbnb, like you said, to maybe a restaurant. You know, What about food poisoning? I don't know if it goes to that level, but 
is like maybe the embedded part of the insurance. Can you explain more how that differs from just reselling insurance? Yes, absolutely. So think about going back to the Turo example, right? So Turo created a peer-to-peer car sharing insurance. So basically what it does is that it protects the renter and the car owner by extension if anything goes wrong while the rental is happening. So in a way it's similar to the insurance that car rental companies protect, but because it's between individuals, it has to be a, a different product. So that is an example of like, you know, Turo was effectively the company who created all of this. And, you know, it, Turo runs most of this in-house. And this product now, it's really a feature of a broader product, which is car sharing, right? Like what people are actually purchasing when they go at Turo is the access to the car, right? Is the ability to drive that Porsche for a couple of days or for however long they want. And insurance is just an, an enabler and the feature of of this larger product. And I think, you know, in this kind of new world, what we're seeing is that on the companies, the tourers, Airbnbs, Tesla, they are going beyond just selling Allianz insurance, right? They're creating completely different new type of products that didn't exist before, that fit their core business, that enable their core business. And you know, they are playing a much, much more active role than companies used to play in the past when they were just kind of a distribution channel. And so embedded insurance is a very new term. It's about two years old. So even if you ask insurance experts, they don't necessarily agree on on what is the definition. So your your questions are very natural and they come all the time. But, you know, in in our own tint definition, we believe that the difference between embedded and what you described between the banking and the ANS is that the company taking a more active role and uh, making that insurance is kind of really a core part of their product as opposed to a completely separate product that is just kind of provided by, mm. by a third party. Okay, that's interesting. I think I can get a, a better grasp of this through an example, but I actually would like to hear that example through the, the tint creation story because obviously you had to have your first client, your first case study and, and the evolution. So that's a good way for me to maybe dive into your background a little bit here, Mateus, because uh, you mentioned Turo. You worked for, obviously, you're the co-founder and CEO of Tint. I do want to drop a, an important point. You just recently raised a $25 million Series A in funding. That was back in February of this year, 2022. And, you know, obviously, you're a venture-backed company, which I you know, makes sense in, in insurance. Can we go even further back? I'm taking a stab in the dark here, but with your name, are you born and raised in Italy or is it just a family background, Italian, or am I completely off? I think you are 70, 75% off and I, I can tell <laughs> okay. you why. So my last name is Italian. You are absolutely right. I, I was born and raised in Brazil. So that's what and, and Mateus is basically a Portuguese version of Matthews. So it's a Born and raised in Brazil, and you know my, my story is that grew up outside Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo area of Brazil, and then eventually moved to the city to go to college. I went to business school even for college, and I really knew I wanted to start businesses. Like I really knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I grew up, and I ended up coming to the U.S. to go to Harvard Business School. Well. 12 years ago now, so um, some some time ago. And the reason why I came is that I wanted to get access to you know, the U.S. market, but more more precisely to Silicon Valley. As a, somebody who wanted to launch global businesses in technology, I thought there was no better place than here to make those things happen. And that's exactly what I've done. Is it uncommon for your peer group back in Brazil and Sao Paulo to have an aspiration to go to Stanford and start a business? Like, were you a bit of a, a unicorn yourself in terms of wanting that outcome, believing it was possible? Or is that becoming more common in Brazil to see people, you know, aim for Stanford, aim to go to the States, aim to start a business? I think that it is more common, but it's true, obviously, Brazil is a country with you know, 20, uh, 220 million people. So in that sense, I... I wouldn't say that everybody is doing that, but I'd say definitely a growing number. If I think about my core group of friends, like there's there are a number of them that are almost all of them, if I think about that, came to do business school or have an, have oh, an wow. MBA from the US. So you weren't weird then in any shape or form based on your, your upbringing? No, I wasn't weird. Again, I think I, I'm not saying that my group of friends necessarily reflects 
220 million people, but I, but I'd say it's not it's not that uncommon. So Y Combinator, for example, now invests a lot more in Brazilian startups, and some of those founders they are running their business from Brazil. Some of them are in the US, but I'd say the Brazil at this point has developed a a lot more than when I was going through college, for example, has developed an ecosystem that now creates founders that have global ambitions that know either they're running their business from Brazil, but with global ambitions, or did they eventually move to the United States to have a kind of uh, a foundation from here? Okay. So then when you head off to Stanford, was Uh, the I went to to Harvard Business Harvard, sorry. Uh, Stanford, Harvard, uh, I was confused those two. With heading off to Harvard, is it clear at that point I will definitely start a company during or after graduation or was there still ambiguity about that? It was clear to me. I spent, so I had most of my electives related to some shape or form of entrepreneurship from entrepreneurial finance to, you know, how to launch a tech ventures to founder dilemmas, like what are the, I, I think I've done all the, poster classes for entrepreneurship at HBS. And not everybody does that, right? Like, you know, MBAs is too highly focused on you know, consultants, investment banking, like more like large companies and kind of traditional careers. That is changing over time. But I would say that like, you know, even about 10 years ago when I was going to business school, entrepreneurship was too a bit of the exception, not the rule, but like, at least for me it was it was very clear. And that's now after graduation, I moved to the Bay Area and I joined Turo, which now, as I mentioned before, but at the time it was called Relay Rides. It was a Series A startup with now about 15, 20 people when I joined. That's where I met my co-founder, Jerome. He joined a few months before I did. And the reason why now I moved back to Silicon Valley and ended up joining a, a startup is that because I wanted to see, like, you know, as not not having my connections in the U.S., I really wanted to see two things. I wanted to learn how, like, to run a world-class startup by by being part of one. And I, as I mentioned, I joined the company, had about 15 people. When I left, four years later, it had over 400, was already a multi-billion dollar business. So, like, I kind of got the experience of going through this this growth. And I also wanted to kind of create a bit more of a network here. So the only f- folks I knew in the U.S. were from business school. And after working four years at Turo, I, I met you know, investors, I met colleagues. Obviously, my co-founder, as I mentioned, came from from there. So that was a little bit of my rationale of moving from business school to startup. And then we saw the opportunity that eventually became Tint. While we were working at Turo, it was really related to the the experiences that we were living there. So the kind of the dots end up connecting well. When you applied for Turo, you're obviously a fresh graduate from Harvard. Was it obvious that you would get the job, or did you, you know, were you applying for lots of other jobs at the same time? I mean, it it sounds almost easy to look back in your past and see the connection between Tint and Turo Insurance, and it's very much needed for a car rental company. But I'm sure that wasn't the path that you necessarily saw yourself like you didn't see yourself becoming an insurance guy when you graduated from harvard right that's absolutely the case yes i think in life you know as anything we do that's probably a 50 percent that is a chance right so to your point i think if you look back the dots connect but as we were going through the journey like you don't necessarily see them and i think steve jobs had a quote or something alongside those lines is like, no, it's all about connecting the dots, but you can only do that backwards, right? So, I mean, the, my story with, with, with Turo for it, so I was obviously applying, as, as you mentioned, to a lot of different jobs, some of them big companies. So I was interviewing for a product job at Google. I was talking with different companies. Interestingly enough, I was talking even with Coinbase at the time, and Coinbase was even oh, wow. smaller than Turo. I think there were six or six people at the time, uh, like very, I, I had them lunch with the founders and so i was applying to a different one but on turo i one of my best friends he was going through mba at stanford he had his summer job at turo and and at the time turo was looking for somebody with a kind of entrepreneurial profile with some travel experience and to run a a new part of the business and i was lucky that that fit now squarely my profile so 
it was clear to me and to the company that no, that was that was a good match. And that's kind of how I ended up joining Turo. And you know, what I didn't know is that you no, know, I, I I thought I was just joining a tech startup, right, based in San Francisco. Of course, it's is in the car space, so there was some kind of known tech elements to it. I had not anticipated that insurance was actually one of them. But it turns out that you know, after a few months, I ended up leading you know, or becoming the head of international to lead the tourist international expansion, first to Canada and then to Europe. And you know, I, I had no idea, but 80% of my time was spent with insurance. And that's when I kind of learned the basics and also kind of learn how hard it was for a company like Turo to kind of create their own insurance products and not only in different countries with different regulations, having to work with different partners and not necessarily speaking the same language. And you know, in the meantime, my co-founder was running through the underwriting models or the data, or, or as you mentioned, the, the calculations required to understand how to price this protection, how to make it work effectively. So he was seeing from a different angle kind of the same problem. Like he didn't have the tools, he didn't have the expertise to, to make that happen. And that's when we got together and we decided to create Tint to solve exactly the problems we were living as we were at Turo and like it make it easy for all the other thousands of tech platforms that are all there and have opportunity to increase the value of their car business with, with protection and insurance, like create something that they could have a much easier journey that we had to go through as we were at Turo. Two questions here. When you say, and I, I see this will connect to the origin story of Tint, but what is the process while you're working in Turo? So you get hired, it was small, you said 15 people. So really brand new. I have to thank you too. I, I was a regular Turo user both in San Francisco and in Canada. So I probably was one of your nice. first Canadian users. So Great you're here. Yeah, in Toronto. So because again, it's just an area of, of growing a company I've never needed to solve. And I don't think a, a lot of people do unless they're in a, a market, like you said, where it's obvious you can't actually deliver the service without having insurance. But if you're in Toronto and you're thinking, okay, we're about to roll out, let's take Canada, we're about to enter Canada, we need to have all of our car renters and car providers protected both from the side of the car being in an accident, therefore protecting the car, and getting the money back for repairs, but then also the human beings who might be hurt. There's the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. public protection for both the driver and any anyone else that's impacted both in that Turo car and other cars that might be impacted. That to me is all kind of standard car insurance, which you would get locally normally as a, a car owner. How do you go begin to solve that problem in Canada, say for as an example, as you were the, sounds like the first person to do that for Turo? Yeah, so think about it. My journey was I moved to, and it's interesting how it, it connects to insurance, right? I moved to Vancouver. So obviously, you know, being a, a Silicon Valley-based company, it would be easier to be in Vancouver. It was much closer to headquarters. Well, it turns out that in the province of British Columbia, insurance is a monopoly by the state. Of, and then at the time, there was no way to launch peer-to-peer -peer car sharing really no way so i moved to toronto because obviously we wouldn't be able to use vancouver or british columbia as our launch pod so i moved to toronto and then end up going through the same process and we found that while nobody had ever done peer-to-peer -peer car sharing in canada there was a, a legal framework that we could use so we started to meet with a lot of different insurers and we end up meeting with intact which is the largest insurer in canada and Things worked out like you no. Know, it was a process of you no. Know, I'd say over a year to to get things figured out and launched. But the first you now two to three months was even trying to figure it out if that was ever possible. And and then of course it's Canada or not of course, but in Canada like in the U.S. insurance is a state by state in the case of Canada province by province requirement. So then we had to you know launch a different product in in Montreal and and eventually after. I left Turo, I think about you know, five years in, into Canada, they were able to like launch in British Columbia and convince the state regulators, convince the, the, the local company that you know, that was a viable path and then eventually find a way to make that work illegally. So just long way of saying that like when you get there, there's really no map, there's no clear path. Like we had to trailblaze that and eventually 
engage with the you know, and educate in a way the insurers of like what we're trying to do, why it matters, how it works in the US, and get them to a comfort and and that like first it works, right? And it worth their time and it's worth them partnering with us, but also like you know, finding a, a framework that will could make this idea work in a legal way. Mm-hmm. And you did this fresh out of college, right? Because that was almost, I think you had a little startup experience just, I'm seeing your, your bio briefly for a year after uh, graduating Harvard, but then you would have been like this under 25-year-old going up to the Canadian government saying you got to change your, your regulations. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Almost. So I went, I did that after business school. So I had, at the time, had three years of professional experience as a consultant plus business school. So I was like five years out of college, which I think I had 28 at the time. So like, yeah, very young. But one of those great things of startups, right? You can empower the right people with the right ideas and skill set and give them space to grow. I'm very grateful to Andre Haddad, who is the CEO of Turo, and, and he was my boss at the time for really taking the risk on me and coaching me and, and mentoring me throughout the journey. So, like, yeah, I could take that. There was a, you know, a big responsibility and a big priority for the company and, and work on that. Okay, so let's transition to how you, you left Turo and went and started Tint. My first question regarding that is you were early at Turo, early as in I'm assuming you would have got some equity, correct me if I'm wrong again, in mm-hmm. the company. There may have been a vesting schedule. Uh, I don't know how how big a decision was it for you to leave Turo. As in, could you have lost a lot of your your equity by doing that, or you, do you still have equity because like, Turo is still private, I believe, right? Yeah, I had vested almost all my stocks by the time I left, and you know, like I again, as as I mentioned in my bigger journey, I, I knew that you now working at a startup was a good intermediate step. For me to go uh, launch my launch my thing, and then things end up, I'd say, com- like the timings end up converging because I thought that you know the four year period of stay there was a good amount to go through through the process, and you no, know, you can argue that was relatively conservative. Like some people, either they just don't do this intermediate step or they just stay for a year. But in my case, I really liked my job at Turo. As I mentioned, I had all the support from the team and I was growing personally. My equity had, was obviously vasting and it was like, you know, definitely an important decision point for me. But I'd say more importantly, we left when we thought that we had the opportunity, right? So you know, my co-founder and I, we had been talking about startup ideas and different things for oh, a good six months by the time we decided to leave. But you know, we felt that we didn't have uh, enough kind of meat to get started, I think when when we got to a point that we thought they were like, okay, this is roughly the space we want to go. This is the high level opportunity. Let's get out and spend time trying to figure out the direction from here. When we got to this point, we decided to leave. Okay, so it wasn't too much of a risk from a financial standpoint. And I have to say, Mateus, you sound just so confident like yep i knew i was gonna do this the timing is right i just made the decision there's no sense of self-doubt or worry i'm leaving a great job what if my startup fails is it just your natural tone (laughs) or were you always a sort of confident person i think that there's a little bit of both right i think you know i tended to have a confidence personality but in a sense like by the time i got to that decision we had a high degree of confidence because we spent four years building that right so there was not didn't happen overnight. It wasn't obvious from the beginning. So, like, let's kind of unpack that. So, as I mentioned, like, by the time Michael Fonda and I were ready to just to leave and to to like jump, we had like worked for four years. So, going back to both of us had you no know, financially put us in a position that you know even in the worst case scenario, like we wouldn't be in trouble. That was a big thing. So we de risked the process a lot for us, right? Like at that at that time, what is the worst case scenario? We try a startup, doesn't work. Let's say we go for a year, for two years, doesn't work, but we still had enough financial kind of safety net that we no, we wouldn't be at risk. The second part's like, you know, we we stayed for four years. We we thought we learned the skills that we needed. And we saw, thought we like knew deeply about the use case or our customers and what we were going to solve. 
So I think that, and then maybe the third one, like as I mentioned, at that point we had built relationships. So the day we left to row, we knew we had access to venture capital to get started just because of the relationships that we built. Now, Andre was our first angel investor. So we knew that we had the right conditions to do it in a, of course, it's high risk, right? So startups are always high risk, but even in the, the downside scenario for us was relatively well protected. So I just don't want to say that like, of course, we had a lot of doubts. Of course, we we're very scared, right? Day one is like that excitement of starting something new, but you we were pretty scared, like, you know, and we can't get you tint in the future, but you know, things didn't work as expected for at least two years for us. So there was definitely a lot of like scary moments where we like, weren't sure if we would make it, even if you just, just keep going. But at the minimum, at the point of choice, we had high confidence of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take us through this decision. You, you left. What was your business idea for Tint at the point you were leaving Turo? We knew the macro team was the same. Like we were like, okay, Turo is doing all those things in insurance, benefiting from it, becoming kind of insurer. That's something big happening here. Let's figure out what's the first product we build. I obviously... This is a macro, huge transformation in a $2 trillion industry. So obviously, as a startup, you cannot act on all of this at first. So our first two years, we're really trying to find what's our first product. And our first product that we we thought at the time was very related to data and machine learning because we're the, the things that were very kind of like my co-founder and even me, like we're, we're doing for Turo. So the idea is like, okay, how do we help companies like Turo optimize their insurance programs using machine learning and data? And that was a little bit of our first, probably first year. I think what we learned there is like, wow, we got some customers, we got some uh, some revenue. It was not a big market. It was not a scalable. Like, you know, companies like we never sold to Turo, for example. When you say the idea is some sort of artificial intelligence around insurance for other companies... Does that mean you're thinking we're going to build like a SaaS platform or you're going to be like a, a consulting data reseller? Yeah. Like what is it you saw the version of the company at that starting point? And then what type of customers were you trying to like? What's your MVP and what's your first customer for that MVP? And I would like to tie this into funding too. Like how much do you think you needed to fund in order to get this started? Yeah. It was basically a SaaS platform. So pure software that we will sell, like we'll build those models and sell as a service and, and get a paid by API call by every time those, those customers use our models for either pricing or for verifying users, you'll be SaaS-based. Is that hard to build? It is hard to build, yes, but it is not. You can get an MVP with two people like we were. And I think we end up having two more folks joining the team early. But let's say with a small number of of people with technical background, you can get something like this up and running. And that's a little bit of what we did. I think now our eventually we end up working with a couple of companies called Aldorzi and Rideshare. So both in the space, one is peer-to-peer RV sharing, the other one is peer-to-peer motorcycle sharing. But it was like it's still using our Turo ex- expertise, branding. So we really went to places where we could leverage our personal branding early on, like before the company had its own branding. So that's when we got an MVP going with them. Uh, we were getting paid. But then our challenge with that was like that version of the product worked well for a small number of customers. So that made it very hard for us to raise money, right? To have a venture venture-backed business. So then, no, I think our company story for like, okay, we have this application that is great, but relatively small application. Like, what are we missing from the entire journey that we eventually want to go and like, you know, helping those companies with launching and, and succeeding in their in their insurance products? And then we started to build brick by brick of this journey up to the point where we could go to the customers and say, well... It's not only about that machine learning or artificial intelligence thing. Now, you know, we help you with the systems you need to manage claims. I, I can find you an insurer to work with you. Like we really developed the end-to-end solution. So the analogy that I like to use is like we used to have a Ferrari engine and we we're trying to sell that to people and just say, you go figure out the rest of the car yourself. And then most of people are coming to us and say, well, 
For us, I don't need a Ferrari engine. I'm okay with a Honda Civic one, right? And the second one is like, by the way, I don't know how to build the rest of the car. So we started to eventually sell the car instead of selling a very powerful engine. And by the way, the engine is obviously one of the parts of the car, but we had the the kind of turnkey solution for them. And that's when we saw the inflection point in our business where we were from like, you know, kind of, had a, had a perception that we're working in a small market with a few customers to, well, the car actually applies to any tech platform on the other side. So that can be a transformational to the insurance industry. And that obviously becomes a huge market. So that's a little bit of when we see now. That's about the time when we got into Y Combinator. And then you know, raising money, who was very challenging for us in the early days, became a lot easier at that point, and we raised our seed round after Y Combinator, and then eventually we raised our Series A earlier this year. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> okay, so I, I think I'm getting better understanding here. So let me summarize, tell me where I'm right and where I'm wrong. You, the Ferrari example is very helpful. When you built the first SaaS platform, it was kind of like an AI machine learning data aggregator where you would plug in information about how to get insurance for certain situations and i'm assuming that's where the machine learning ai can help because you can put in parameters like we're going to be servicing this many people with this kind of risk profile what's the best type of insurance or or where to source it or something like that and that's the SaaS platform that's kind of like the back-end engine so when you go to the rv uh, peer-to-peer company or the motorcycle peer-to-peer company they can get access to your your engine they can do that research but ultimately they still have to build their own insurance for their customers whether that's using your data as a starting point but they have to still provide find a provider somehow that delivers on that data to then sell to their customers then you realize that was okay but it wasn't really solving the problem where they wanted something they could just press a button the insurance is active and covering the situation they need to cover like you said they need the car not just the engine so then you start to build out it's almost like a front end and a back end you previously only had a back end now you built the front end as well so with the front end you can have like a traditional kind of front-facing SaaS where you can literally sell to anyone a person within a company it's like a b2b SaaS can sign up potentially build their own insurance profile package to then use at their company and like you said that's the embedded nature of it yeah so i mean i'm still a little fuzzy because i don't really understand the product itself because of the dynamic nature of insurance but i feel like that what i just said is kind of like a summary of what tint does and how it evolved is that about right yeah it's about right i think you know insurance that we are definitely our vision and it should eventually be this kind of one-click insurance that you that you mentioned. Obviously, the the experience today, it's, it's in, given the complexity of the product, so it's, it's it's a little or not there yet. But you know, absolutely, like you know, what we wanted to eventually the customer uh, the customer to eventually feel that is you know as simple as that, right? Like it's a different product, but we always like to think about this tribe experience where like you know, that's really a lot of complexity behind the scenes for payments. But it's tried to you know, make it as easy as, as you would like. And you know, some customers want to have more control and more visibility, and therefore they will put more time and work. But you now for the customers who really want some fast way to get started, they can get that as well. So I'd like to talk about the, the funding part of this. With Like you said, you were entered into Y Combinator and then obviously became easier to raise. Just so I understand the connecting part to that, how much did it cost to build your SaaS? You said you you hired two technical people. Like, what was was your was there a seed round? You said you got an angel investment from the, the Turo boss you had. So, like, how far did that take you along? So we raised a pre-seed round in the first few months of our company. So I think we raised a total of seven hundred thousand dollars before Y Combinator. So that was definitely enough to build the first version of the car that we were talking about. The first version who could deliver cars. So yeah, so that's that's what we did. Then we raised about four million in our seed round and then we raised twenty-five series A. Yeah, I think you know that's definitely enough capital to get our company to not only you know building the product, but building the company around it, right? Like you no, know, are we we're now getting close to fifty 
50 employees and we were about 10 or 15 a year ago. So definitely going through the company building phases where we're adding you know, more and more kind of important functions as we scale. But I would say like, you know, your, for your questions, like, yeah, this, I'll say 700 to a million, I think was enough to build the first incarnation of our product. And that was before Y Combinator. Y Combinator for you, was that really just the gateway to get more legitimacy and, and open to exposure to more investors more than the actual Y Combinator training and program itself? I think that the, before we got in, I would say my answer would be yes. Uh, we were definitely interested in the branding and we were interested in the access to Y Combinator companies as potential customers. And you know, we do have now a few Y Combinator companies who are customers and, and that's great. But I would say that like, you know, as we went through the process, there are very important lessons that they teach. They are not obvious and it was not obvious to me before going in. So I found the, despite having a kind of MBA business school education, I found their education part important as well. So I'm a big fan of Y Combinator. I believe in the model. I believe they have great teams and I do believe that startups get value as they go through it. Okay. So today, sort of our last five, 10 minutes here before you wrap things up, like you said, you're going through a growth phase. Can you tell me a little bit about how do you grow? Like, what is the marketing for a platform like yours? Because it, it sounds to me, because the vision is to have that kind of stripe of insurance, but you're in the kind of middle ground still. So I'm guessing there needs to be quite a bit of hand-holding. Like, you, you might be doing cold approach or some kind of a approach to another company, maybe the, the CEO or the founder, or at least someone who can make a decision on uh, using something like Tint. Then you have to kind of show them what it can do and how they might benefit. So it's kind of like not an automatic process. There's definitely some kind of almost consultative process to go along with selling what Tint does. And is that something you personally do now? Do you have a sales team? What does it look like today? Yeah, I think you're correct in your in your assumptions. I think we definitely have, you know, some customers come to us with like, they already done the homework they know they want to monetize or enhance their solution with some sort of insurance or, or protection. And then a lot of the discussion is on the how and how we can support them. But then you know, we we are also actively working with a marketing team to educate the market, right? Like and even show to startups that um, they can increase a lot of their margin and solve some of the runway problems with and then a fintech, right? Not only insurance lending, there is no payments, there are many Many kind of levers they can play, but you know, protection is less insurance being uh, being one of them. So we do some education. And in terms of our sales efforts, we do have a sales team. I'm still active in, in some of the efforts there, but we we already have like you know playbooks and a more structured sales approach as well. I think we believe in, in a direct sales model, at least at this stage of this company. Makes sense. So so what's more your day to day role now for you? Are you bit of a jack of all trades as it often happens with the CEO you're, you're kind of doing a lot of hiring decision making strategic planning maybe a little bit of sales you know a little bit of dabbling everywhere that is exactly the case I think obviously we now have a great team in place that kind of handles more of the execution but in terms of attention focusing yeah my attention kind of changes every hour or so depending on what's the most burning topic, but now it definitely spans across kind of the different functions, different functions of the company. The one that we are not you know, active now is fundraising, given that we, we raise around, but like I'd say for the most other parts, they are, are all important to us and I have to spend my time on them. That makes sense. All right, so maybe last question here could be maybe second last question, Mateus. For the listener who is an entrepreneur who like you, when you were younger, you're very clear you, you wanted to start your own business. And, and your path is, uh, it seems almost so strategically orchestrated and perfect. You went from studying at the, the best university you can think of for, for being an entrepreneur to working for a startup that became a unicorn. So you got this from very early days. So you got the benefits of a little bit less risk, but still equity, plus seeing everything growing. And then jumping to start your own business in an area that you probably, as we talked about, didn't see yourself focusing on. You know, you weren't 
a lover of insurance back in Brazil as a child, thinking one day I'm going to have an insurance company. (laughs) But it ended up being, thanks to Turo, where you built some expertise. All of this, is is that a good model, you think, for a person listening to this who might be, you know, just about to start this process, you know, maybe they're about to graduate from from high school or, you know, hey, maybe even they're in their 30s or 40s and they're about to switch to entrepreneurship or do it the right way finally. Do you think it's a good blueprint what you've done? Would you change anything as a recommendation to other people? I think it's a blueprint. I think there's, and I would say it's a relatively low risk, as low risk in a relative terms, right? Because in a sense, I one could argue that I spend a good amount of my career, let's call it 10, 10 years from college to becoming a, a founder of a venture-backed company. And there are many examples of you know, some folks that they skip college and they do that when they are 19 and they're very successful. So I think it by no means is the only blueprint. I think it's one available bl- blueprint, especially for people who want to pursue a bit more of a traditional path and you know, go to college and then business school or grad school. So it is a bit of a de-risked path because again, as I mentioned in my when I when I left Turo, like worst case scenario doesn't work. You no, know, we could just go get a job in other startups and we'll probably get a better job than we would without the failed entrepreneurial experience anyway. So I'd say like I'll, even though you say it sounds unconfident, orchestrated, like I, it was, I think, in my point of view, a relatively low risk path, and it became still very high risk in in a general sense because entrepreneurship always going to be high risk. But out of the entrepreneurship options, low risk. So again, I don't think it's the only one that people can can take. Mm-hmm. I like it though as a blueprint. I do think it's you know if you like to study and educate and ease your way in rather than go crazy at 19 and try and make something work, which is, you know, can work too. In terms of the future for you, Mateus, I'm, I'm guessing, obviously, you've got a vision you want to see executed with Tint. You've got some early shares in Turo, which may or may not be, you know, and like you said, you have a, enough money to be okay, but then there's okay for now versus okay for the rest of your life money, which tends to be a byproduct of, of a a billion dollar company exit. I, I don't know if you were early enough for that to be the case, but sounds like you should be, at least if Turo continues and floats and as an IPO or is acquired. Do you think about that? Is money important to you or is it really mo- more about just seeing the vision of Tint uh, realized? And, and, and do you see something else after that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it may sound like you know, a bit disingenuous, but like money has never been my driver and it's you not today, right? And I think that's an important and that's not a right and wrong. And you know, one of going back to business school, my classes was one called Founder's Dilemma, when basically the author says there's a trade-off between being rich or being king, right? If you can, and you can read the books, it's great. But my point here is like, you know, for me, the money has never been the driver. So while I do not think that today I could just retire for the rest of my life, like even if I could, I don't think I would. Because it, and and if somebody is more driven for money, like you may design things differently, right? Running a startup to get a, a good exit quickly and sell to a bigger company, it's a probably a better path because you can you know, make that money liquid with less effort and time. That is absolutely not the path that we are taking at Tint. But I think a lot of this comes because the founders were like, you know, getting a fast exit has never been part of our motivations to. And again, no no problem if that's not the case. I think entrepreneurs can create value in, in many different ways, but it's definitely not something that applies to us. Okay. Well, thank you for for joining me on the show, Matthias. Is there anything else you want to you know mention? Obviously, it's tint.ai uh, is the website address if anything Matthias has said during this interview speaks to you as potentially even being a, a customer of Tint. You might be running a startup where some kind of embedded insurance is an option for you. Anywhere else you want to send people? Anything else you want to say, Matthias? No, I think, yeah, if you, if you have any idea about any kind of insurance or protection product that could make your business better, absolutely go to your website and we would love to talk. But I think in terms of entrepreneurship overall, it's like, yeah, it's, if there one lesson I learned is that maybe again it's another one that sounds fluffy, but it is true that grit is the number one factor that I think will kind of keep entrepreneurs go moving forward. 
So that would be my recommendation to you know whoever, especially in this market, going through a tough time and unclear how much fundraising is going to work. Find ways to keep going. Like you just just keep going. <laughs> if you can't do that, you're probably going to get a good pat on the other on the other side. And that's a great piece of advice to end. So thank you, Matthias. Appreciate the time and good luck uh, with the future of Tint. Thank you so much, Jared. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matthias. Really clear-cut story. I think there's obviously a lot more to come with Tint. I really enjoyed hearing the analogy of the Ferrari engine, but people actually needing the full car. Certainly an inspiring and I think a nice safe path for someone who's smart, wants to work wants to be an entrepreneur eventually, but is okay to learn by being an early employee at another company. I think it's a great strategy for anyone out there who loves entrepreneurship, but maybe isn't ready to take the risk as the founder, you know, to raise money, or you maybe don't have enough of a a buffer of your own money to take the risk of starting something from scratch. You can get paid, you can get early equity, and you can be involved for the entire early ride of a startup by joining as one of their first employees. Obviously, you've got to pick the right company, uh, be there at the right time. If it's a successful company like with Turo, it can be an amazing experience like with Mateus and his story. Okay, if you liked this episode of Vested Capital, I encourage you to subscribe. I checked my stats and almost everyone who listened to this show is actually an Apple subscriber. So I appreciate all you Apple subscribers out there. And if that's you, I'd love for you to leave a review. I've been doing this podcast in some shape or form since 2006, uh, more recently with the rebranding to Vested Capital. It seems like a new ep- new podcast. We've only got 37 episodes, so those reviews really do help. If you could just head to Vested Capital in your Apple app for podcasts and then click to leave a review, I would really appreciate that. And you can still find this show in other places as well. You can do it on Spotify. You can do it on the Amazon MP3 podcast player. You can find us on my own site yarrow.blog all the previous episodes are there as well and do share with a friend if you know someone who'd love to benefit from this interview with Matthias or any of the other entrepreneur stories on the podcast just send them to vested capital in their favorite podcast player all right that's it from me my name is yarrow and i'll talk to you on the very next episode bye-bye